This is the Straight Dope Podcast. Today's episode, I'm going to be talking with my friend Mark from XO Mountain Gear. And in fact, I don't think we talk about shooting at all. And it's going to be something that I do from time to time is just bringing friends that, that do stuff and talk to them about what they're doing in the outdoors in related fields. And most everyone that comes on is going to be someone who shoots, but the primary emphasis might not actually be in the shooting itself. I'll, I'll kind of give you a heads up because if some of you are just listening for tidbits on uh, training and fundamentals and that kind of stuff, and you don't want to hear chats about gear and equipment and, and fitness and lifestyle and that kind of thing, I'm just going to let you know right up ahead of time that, that uh, I don't think we really talk about shooting. We talk about equipment and gear, and I thought it would be fun to bring it on because the last few years I haven't been involved in that world of going out with gear into different environments and so that kind of uh, immediate credibility starts to drift away and fade. And I think that that's really important to realize that, you know, everybody, no matter what they do, there's going to be a time where they start doing it less and less. And the further you get away from that, kind of the less current your experience is. And so it helps to chat with people that are still out there in the field doing the things that they're doing to make sure that the stuff that you know is either still relevant or that there's stuff that you need to brush up on because things are constantly evolving and changing. And so I feel like that, and in the last three or four years, I've done less and less stuff in the outdoors. And as a result, uh, I don't want to kind of hold the false impression that I'm up to speed on anything. So so it's it's fun to chat with folks that, that are still out there testing and making sure that uh, you know they're they're performing at the highest standards. The uh, the things that I have been doing recently is what I talk about on normal episodes of the Straight Dope, which is uh, shooting related. Now I talk a lot about uh, the ammo that I test that I go over to Mile High and pick up. But this last weekend I uh, was shooting a 300 Norma, and or I was I was there with a guy who was shooting a 300 Norma. Went over to Mile High, grabbed a case of factory burgers, the 215s, and we chronographed a bunch of it, and it had a standard deviation. Uh, you know, we, we did a couple runs. One was 4.7 and one was 5, but the highest standard deviation we got was 5, and it shot great. And uh, so I like to talk about factory ammo because there's some really good stuff out there right now. If you go to Mile High and you're looking for 300 Norma ammo, uh, they've got the burger ammo that right now is shooting uh, lights out and it's doing a really good job. Anyway, I just wanted to give you a heads up with that. Another thing that's coming down the road is that the, you know, we talk, I talked with the AccuFire guys that were doing a series of team matches and they've wrapped up their team match, although I think they might be going to one that they hadn't planned on pretty soon. We're going to do a wrap-up and talk about lessons learned from those guys and a bunch of interviews and a bunch of other things. Now, I've taken out some of the specific number and details and put it over on the subcast for subscribers. So if you want to get a handle on you know not only the stuff that we're going to continue to do here on The Straight Dope, but also want to hear some more detailed training and number type stuff, uh, that's growing and starting. It, it's pretty new, but but I'm getting a good uh, grip on balancing these episodes with with those. Uh, that comes with the Riflecraft subscription. So if you get a Riflecraft subscription, you get plugged into that subcast, and it populates to wherever you're listening to this. 
uh, you get it on your same feed. And those uh, episodes are coming out at least once a week. I'm going to try to do two a week and answer questions there. Another thing that I picked up from Mark was they're using this kind of audio voicemail thing. And I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes of this so that if you want to ask a question, it'll come through as a audio question where, you know, if we're going to do a Q and a, I can just put your audio and link that to a Q and a episode that has actual people asking actual questions rather than just the emailed ones that I get, which are fine, but I thought it might be fun to be able to send or click on with your phone and just leave an audio voicemail um, kind of question, Dealey Bob. So check out the show notes. And um, at the end of the conversation, Mark mentioned a list of resources that he has on the EXO website. And because it's at the end of the podcast, I want to mention it up front because I think that's really valuable to have free tools for nutrition and gear and training and just something that is a baseline that has free stuff. Now, I'm linked into a lot of other kind of fitness things that, that aren't free, like through Softleet as a Softleet athlete. Uh, but I do think that getting that base free kind of template that you can build your knowledge and kind of toe into that world uh is pretty cool and they already have that stuff compiled. So I wanted to kind of front load that and I'll put links to that in the show notes for this episode. Also, if you are going to jump ahead, uh, but if you do want to hear us just chat about uh, essentially just some equipment stuff that, that, that he's taken out with him on his mountain hunts, then stick around and uh, without any more blabbering, uh, let's jump over to that. This is going to be an experiment um, and hopefully one that I continue to push forward because I know so many people with so many diverse backgrounds that I, I want to start having some overlap rather than expose like just how tiny each of those little niche communities are because I feel like the kind of stuff I talk about with shooting applies to anybody who carries a rifle, not necessarily focusing on any any particular particular aspect to that but but one thing that's been for 30 years of my life being capable of going anywhere more or less on very short notice and functioning knowing what i needed and how i was going to use it and what i was going to pick and what i was going to pack and how everything was going to go was one of those things that not only did i depend on but i kind of prided myself on it was it was a go-to person for a lot of people who did similar things because when I wasn't in the field, I was here working twice as hard to make sure I knew exactly the limits of the equipment that I was going to take to the field. And then you insert COVID and I stopped. And another thing that is really hard and fast rule for me is you know, you want to know people that are trained and that have experience, but you also want to know people that understand that credibility goes so far, but being current in whatever it is stops when you haven't been in the field. And I feel like three years, um, for the last three years, my kind of participation in a lot of stuff has dwindled to the point where I could grab my kit and go perform in the field, but I couldn't tell you about the products that have been out there. And I know for sure that 
one of the things that you do that, that I really respect about you is not only are you looking at equipment for what they can and can't do, but you take them into the field on kind of testing runs and those testing runs get more and more complex before you go into the field. So I just wanted to have you on because at this point your credibility um, is there. And I think that anybody listening to this, if they were like interested in equipment of all sorts in the outdoors, like this conversation could, um, you know, turn on some lights and get, get people excited about that, that, that equipment. So, so I appreciate you. I appreciate you coming on and, and talking to me about the things that you've been doing the last couple of years. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. It's uh as we were talking about, it's a big topic and one that we could get into the weeds on. And there's always um, like variables to consider. And that's one thing I try and I try not to speak to what I don't know. And then when it comes to gear specifically, I try and only talk about what I have tested. Um, and I'm quick to say where I haven't, or I'm quick to say, Hey, like I would be interested in this, but I only have limited time with it in the field. Um, but then there's certain pieces where it's like, I feel like I can speak about certain things very concretely only because I do have a decent amount of time with it and in, in different conditions to know like how it's performed. And that's, for me, that's always one thing that's tricky with whether we're talking in the rifle world or the hunting world or really anything gear related when you're getting content online, whether that's from a podcast or like a social media post or a YouTube video, what have you, there's always the one, is that person independent and are they giving you their objective, genuine feedback that's not incentivized in any way um mm -hmm. and then two is how much experience do they have with that so like for me it's always you see like oh i'm gonna go and there's this video on youtube and they called it a review but they very clearly just got the product like maybe that day or maybe a month ago it's like mm -hmm. maybe that's like an unboxing or it's an overview of a product but i think it's like pretty unfair to call that a review oh, because sure. you haven't <laughs> you haven't actually done anything with it right other than say oh this seems like it would work really great you know um, right 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 yeah, yeah. That, i i like man I'm, I'm kind of a dinosaur you know i grew up and learned everything before there was internet so there was like you know even like you know there's no cell phones there's no internet and and when when i realized that people put out videos that were reviews, just like you mentioned, or unboxing videos. And then you look at it and you think, how in the world could this be a thing? Like, seriously, how can unboxing or these reviews where somebody pulls out a pistol and they go, Oh, here's a new, you know, the new SIG something or other. Cause those tend to be really popular, you know, the last year or something like that. And, uh, and it's like, all right, you know, the first 200 rounds through this pistol, you think the fuck, like it, if you don't put like 5,000 rounds through a pistol, like you have no idea about anything, right. Just to start with like, so, so say like shooting a magazine and they're like, well, I didn't get any failures. Like, Oh my God, how, how is And then you see the views and all that stuff. And, and, uh, it just, it just blows my mind. Yeah. And then you extrapolate that on, 
let's say that we could stick with pistols. Let's say you, you are a consumer or shopper. You're considering one of call it three or five pistols. Mm -hmm. How do you find the person who's had experience and true experience with all three or all five of those? Most often those people, if we're honest, really don't exist because most people who do send a ton of rounds downrange, just in this, you know, analogy, do so with one brand or maybe two brands. But yeah, maybe they've shot all five, but do they have that extensive experience with all five? Probably not. And I'm not saying that I'm the guy with like if we talk about any of the backpacking related gear, like shelter, sleep systems, clothing, etc., or hunting gear. I'm not saying I'm that guy who has all the experience with all the things I'm just saying there should be more like clarity on, Hey, here's what I have done. Here's what I have used and here's how much I have used it. And I'm happy, happy to talk about how it's performed. And then I'm happy to recommend like other things that may work well, given whether that is their specifications, their technology, the fabrics that are used, um, et cetera. But then what is the level of field experience with that? And it, I don't know. I, I feel like we're getting away from talking about gear to talking about the lack of like clarity and objectivity to when other people speak about gear. But I think it, that alone is important to put out there before oh, you dive into whether it's our conversation or really anyone's conversation about gear. A hundred percent. And in fact, like, no, I'm really glad it went here, even though like it, it was, you know, this is just kind of impromptu, but, but I think this happens right away when people are can come together, to try to create context for conversation. And I think you're a hundred percent correct. Nobody on earth is going to have all of the experience with all of this stuff because nobody on earth gets paid to test things at that level at a way that somebody who picks something and does stuff in the field would with a particular product, you know, and, and to, to be totally honest, I don't really care if that person gets paid to use certain equipment, um, what I care about is they took that equipment to a place where it mattered. And mm-hmm. in what I did, it was your survival. Like, you know, you, you, if you picked the wrong gear and went and tried to do something that was extremely dangerous, it means the difference between life and death or limbs or, you know, all sorts of, catastrophic events and so whether or not like you got gear for free or something like that usually that's not the conversation um conversation is you know would you continue to use this piece of equipment and why do you use this equipment and um you know why is it important and the only time that you would ever consider testing something else is when you found a limitation and then there was there was kind of hopes or word of a product that might fill that gap, but not just, Oh, let me go, um, you know, up into the Arctic circle for two months to test out product X, Y, Z, because, you know, that's just not something that anybody's going to get paid or have the willingness or interest to do. So, um, you know, if a competitive shooter shoots great, but, but you're right, they're not going to shoot, 50,000 rounds a year through multiple pistols Mm -hmm. and 
you know, they're going to, they're going to put 50,000 rounds a year through the pistol they have. And if it doesn't work right, they may or may not change that, or they may not be allowed to, because it's the pistol that they have to use for work. But, um, yeah, I'm not a pistol shooter, but I, I don't mind making up examples of things that yeah. I, might, I might not actually do myself. But I do think it's pretty funny. You'd say like, okay, well, what about this climbing equipment? It's like, man, you know, I'm going to test out the products of the brands that I have an alliance with or allegiance to because they've earned my respect and trust. And if it fails, I won't use it. But that doesn't mean I'm going to test every freaking product out there. Like I posted a lot a while back about tripods. And some people sent me some free tripods and then they, st- then I started getting emails and phone calls from companies that sold tripods saying, well, buy ours and put it in your test. I'm like, man, I'm not going to buy <laughs> 10 more things. You know, I found these ones that work pretty good and they're the ones that I'm going to use. Um, yeah. you know, that, you know, and that's as far as I, I'm willing to go. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not in the R and D department or, or T and E department or anything like that. It's like shit. You know, these things broke. These things didn't. I use these. They still break, but it's still okay. It's what I'm going to use. Um, and uh, but it, I think it's cool when people share their experiences. So let's get to some of the stuff that you've done now. Just as context to people, uh, you're a, you're a Western hunter and you take big trips for example, up to Alaska. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't know how many people actually go on hunting trips like you do. Uh, I'm, I don't go on hunting trips like you do. So I'm going to ask some questions that might sound a little bit dumb, not only for myself, but also for listeners. Um, when, you know, I know, I know here in the West, when you get a hunting tag, you, you've got a couple weeks. And in those couple weeks, you can go out there and do whatever you plan on doing. And I imagine that when you go to Alaska, it's the same kind of thing. Like you're going to go for a certain period of time. And I imagine that just like a climbing trip, you know, I've gone on climbing trips up into Alaska. Um, you know, you, you, you fly to Alaska and you get on a smaller plane. And, and for climbing stuff, like, like going into the roof, roof gorge, like you get dropped off on a glacier, um, you know, and then you probably ski across a glacier to wherever you're going to go to. And then you set up a camp and you do whatever you're going to do, but, but you're kind of stranded out there until you call somebody to fly an airplane to come in and get you, um, or prearranged extraction date. You're, you're, you're more or less self-supported in what I'm going to call the middle of nowhere, even though nowadays there's people everywhere. Um, <laughs> yeah. Is, is that, is that fair? Like when you go to a, let's say, let's use one of your Alaska trips in the last couple of years as an example. Um, how did you insert and excerpt? Yeah, that's a great question. It, it's varied. Um, it's varied for sure. Like the, the vert, the first experience I had in Alaska was very much what you described as, um, we flew, we could fly commercial basically up to a town called Kotzebue, which is very far north in Alaska. And so that's with Alaska airlines. And then, as you said, you transfer to like a small plane. In this case, we were on a float plane and flew another, I think hundred miles basically and landed on a remote lake that was up in the Brooks range of Alaska, which is like up in the Arctic. And then as you said, you're dropped off and you're left with whatever you brought and you do have limitations on what you can bring. So those small planes certainly have weight limits and all that stuff. And so, um, you make those decisions and those choices on, uh, what you think you need and what you want. 
And when that plane leaves, you, in this case, literally are 100 miles from anything. I mean, no no roads. And um, in the event of an emergency, you're calling for some sort of air support, be that plane, helicopter, what have you. And then even then, it's weather dependent on can that plane or helicopter reach you. Um, and then, as you said, yes, it was like for a prearranged amount of time. And then in our case, which is honestly very common, we were supposed to get picked up on, I think it was day, day eight, maybe in day seven. Um, and they didn't have the weather to fly. So now you're out there an additional time frame. for us that only ended up being one extra day, but there's many instances of that turning into several days. So yeah, you are self-sufficient. Um, so that, that is its own style for sure. Um, just this fall, I went to Alaska for a mountain goat hunt and it's, um, very similar flew commercial into Juneau transferred to a small charter plane flew to a small town of coastal, um, Southeast Alaska. And essentially for this one, we did have a base camp, for example, um, that we started from to kind of sort, get organized, grab our gear. And then you're just backpacking in, you're hiking in and you're self-sufficient in the mountains. Um, for that time frame, the difference being in this case, we could choose to, and actually had to hike out, um, and get back down to a base camp because of a, a weather system that was pretty massive, um, caused some landslides and stuff like that. So in that case, we did have a option to quote unquote bail out, um, as needed for a hunt, but sometimes you don't have that option. In most instances, like in the lower 48, that is definitely something that we try to talk about is we prefer to put everything on our back and backpack hunt, backpack style, meaning everything on your back is what you need. You're self-sufficient with everything in your pack for an extended duration of time. But many times, especially in the lower 48, when you do that, you do have the lifeline of, okay, this may be terrible, but if I get myself in a bad position, but still have physical mobility, meaning I didn't fall and break a femur or something of that sort, but maybe I had a gear failure, a shelter failure, or um, maybe I didn't have the experience or gear needed to keep me safe, whether that's from hypothermia or something like that in certain conditions. Most of the time you are just a hike away from getting back out to either your own original form of transportation or some form of safety. So even if you're quote unquote in the back country, many times you do have that option to get out. That doesn't mean that you want to, right? Like you don't go in with the intentions of coming out when things get hard. And so you do want to make the decisions to prepare for whatever realities nature may bring you um, from a conditions perspective and be able to endure that so that you can remain out there. And in the case of uh, my context, most often being a hunt that you can be out there and continue to hunt. Um, there are certainly instances we do something every year called the death hike. Uh, we actually did, we've done that in the lower 48 a lot. Um, 20, what would it be? 2021 was one of those kind of make or break scenarios. We flew into the Frank church wilderness on a small charter plane got dropped off at a remote airstrip and were, uh, I don't know, it was a crow flies, maybe 20, 25 miles away from the nearest road um, as the crow flies. But terrain wise, I mean, multiple days of effort really um, to get out. Once again, your only option being 
kind of air support if needed for an emergency. But that was very much a fly in, get dropped off, hike out scenario. Um, this year we actually did our death hike in Alaska. And um, what's interesting about Alaska is how, how quickly you can be remote in the sense of you can fly in and be a hundred miles away from the nearest road. But what we found like this death hike we did this summer was in the Chugach range. We started from a road system and hiked in. And even though you're not necessarily extremely far from a road, the, the the landscape and the severity of the conditions and just how big that country is does make it seem like exponentially more remote, even if from a miles perspective, you're not as far away. So it is definitely something we just take, take care of, like pretty much again, going back to most of the trips that we do being fully self-support self-supported and living with what's on your back. I mean, truly everything that we carry is, is analyzed in some extent of mm-hmm. I either need this or I don't because you don't want to care more than you have to. And at the same time of the items you do choose to carry, making sure that none of that is going to let you down. Um, and certainly a lot of that has come from things letting you down <laughs> in the past. Right. Like, and then you, uh, and now I know, right. right. Um, so, but yeah, it's, it's cool, man. It's kind of like a never ending journey and like going into different contexts and different places or in different seasons produces different like obstacles and challenges. And a lot of the times when I'm going into an extended hunt, whether that's like in a certain time of year or a certain location, if I go into a different place in a different time of year, most often like 80 to 85% of what I take with me is the same kind of no matter what, no matter where, but then it's that 10 to 15% that's different for that given context or for that specific trip that yeah, it's only 10% of what's changed, but that 10% is often the the critical things that can make a difference because they are unique and specific and match a certain demand of, of that trip. If that makes sense. For sure. Absolutely. So I'm trying to like in my mind start to, okay, so we got, we got like some context credibility and then you, you got your shakedown hikes and in the, in the context in which you're going out and testing this gear. And now what I'd really like to do is um, try to find a way to walk through either kind of ground up or top down. Like, you know, I know that, you know, just for, for, for survival sake, you need, you know, like water, fire, shelter, you know, or water, you know, some food, some shelter, but, but, um, we're not really talking about survival. We're talking about, you know, the stuff that you take so that you can actually do the job that you went out to do. And, and, um, do you, do you have a, do you have a way that you think about it? Like, um, you know, in terms of task and, and and item. Yeah. I think what popped into my head as you were saying that, and I don't know that I've ever thought in these terms, but the difference between surviving and living is like you mentioned survival gear. And I'm sure for certain listeners, survival means one thing. And maybe that is like this emergency kit or this emergency thing. And that is clearly important. But then there's also like for the trips that we're doing, yes, we're trying to survive clearly, but 
we're trying to live like intentionally we're going out there to be out there. Whereas sometimes survival gear is, Hey, I'm going out there for duration and I don't anticipate on encountering X, Y, or Z, but just in case here's my survival gear. And so I would separate from the just in case type survival gear from the very intentional. Yes. Shelter means I'm going to survive, but it's a very intentional decision to say, I'm going out there intentionally to live out there and as part of living out here for the next seven or eight days and surviving, I need this or these certain things. So, I mean, shelter is a great one. And I think that that, um, yeah, I mean, I could talk about this for an hour. There's the shelter itself, right? So you got some sort of tent or, um, sometimes depending on the conditions, we'll go as simple as like just using a a lightweight bivy sack or a, a little tarp, um, And then part of that with that is also, you know, you're generally in shelter because you're seeking refuge from conditions like perhaps during the day, but clearly it's very often for at night to to then sleep in. So shelter and sleep system, I often bundle together is one because shelter and the choice of shelter can actually dictate your sleep system as well. So when it comes to things like uh, the breathability of the shelter and condensation, um, or the shelter choice because of certain conditions that can actually change what you're choosing from a, a sleep system perspective. And when I say sleep system, that's really uh, called the combination of sleeping bag or quilt. And we can get into the differences there if, if we wanted to. Um, a sleeping pad. And again, for people who may or not like be super current on backpacking stuff, and you're just thinking some sort of like foam bedroll. Um, I generally am going to use some sort of like inflatable sleeping pad that also has an, an insulation value, um, which is actually critically important and often gets overlooked is everybody thinks about warmth being a sleeping bag, but the sleeping pad and what's insulating you from the ground and how much insulation that that provides is extremely critical. And then I'll throw with that clothing being part of what I will call my sleep system, because based on the conditions and the clothing that you have with you, you can choose to strategically use your clothing to aid in the performance of your sleep system as a whole. So like an example of that would be when we did that hike in the Frank church and got flown in, um, we did this in early, I think early April and, you know, at elevation it's still a cold snowy environment. We're actually snowshoeing for a good portion of this hike out. And so, like the end of, we must've started that trip and at this low airstrip, I bet it was probably in the sixties, but then we ended up camping a much higher elevation and snowshoeing into a spot where we had to set up camp, um, on snowpack and the temps got down into the single digits. I knew that that was coming. My sleep, my sleeping bag was rated for the low twenties, it's a 22 degree sleeping bag, but I also knew what type of clothing I was going to have and how I could use that clothing to help create insulation and warmth and then pair with a sleeping bag that even though my sleeping bag was rated for 22 degrees, I knew I had a good sleeping pad with an insulation value and then clothing that would provide further warmth. And I could then pair that down and be comfortable down into the low single digits. So I would say clothing is in one since its own element of survivability and livability because you're you're constantly wearing clothing of some sort 
And the decisions that you make in closing are extremely important, but also would lump that in and say there's some overlap then between your shelter and sleep system and your clothing. But I think if we pick all of those together, that's really where everything starts from a livability, survivability perspective. The things that are going to put you in a dangerous situation, aside from like a traumatic injury, again, like falling, breaking an ankle, et cetera. The things that would, whether you need to call for rescue or not, but maybe cut a trip short, would be mistakes made in clothing, shelter, and sleep system that make it so that you're now um, uncomfortable to the extent that you're willing to endure it or dangerously uncomfortable to the extent that you're, you know, essentially your safety's now compromised from a, a cold or, or wet perspective. Um, so those yeah. are like big categories that are really important if we talk about livability and self-sufficiency like in these environments. Okay. Well, let's, let's take a sec and we'll, let's work into that, but let's do it backwards because people, you know, it's hard for me to know what people are going to get the most from. And, and, and if we start talking about tents or, or shelters of some sort, people might be like, well, you know, maybe I don't want to go out, but, but everybody's going to go out for a day or two. And some of the clothing stuff can be used on, you know, day trips, weekend camps, you know, at all the way out to extended periods of time. And so, um, I, you know, I know it's, it's really popular for people to ask questions about clothes and gear and performance. Um, what, what are some of the things that you've kind of, um, been looking at or testing or, or, or been kind of psyched about that have come out more recently rather than, um, you know, maybe a, a few years back, like, are there any new additions to your loadout in the clothes department, socks, shoes, you know, boots, gloves, uh, thermal kind of insulation, um, water protection, uh, sunblock and anything that goes on your body. Is, mm-hmm. is there anything that's like kind of exciting that you've stumbled into? Yeah, no, that's a great one. And, um, I'll come back to that, like in specific gear items, but one thing is call it a lesson I've learned over the years or a a mistake I see people make consistently. And this relates to like where we're going in terms of specific clothing items and being comfortable, um, and effective. But one of the biggest dangers as it comes to clothing is, um, moisture and then cooler, not even necessarily cold, but cooler environments. Mm-hmm. And the mistake that I see often and, and personally have done myself is in particular, like, let's say we're just going out for a day trip and this could be like, maybe this is just a match, like a shooting match, but people generally want to clearly be comfortable, right? Like that's duh. Mm-hmm. The, the mistake becomes people choose to start their day, their event, their hike, their whatever in some level of comfort without fully anticipating that their level of effort is going to quickly exceed their starting point from a comfort perspective. And so what I'll say is the, one of the most common mistakes as it comes to clothing and layering from a strategic perspective is just do not start comfortable, start cool. 
And so before you go into a hike or a match or a movement or whatever, you need to be slightly uncomfortably cool for the conditions if possible, because your level of effort is going to quickly create a level of comfort for you if you start cool. And it's really easy to be overlayered or overdressed. And what I'll say is even in very cold conditions, for me personally, what I try to do is wear as minimal layers as possible, in particular tops, like for my core warmth. Um, and I will go ahead and use like maybe maybe a beanie or maybe gloves to keep my hands and head warm to an extent. But just knowing that, man, it's literally could be, you know, 25 degrees and I'm just wearing a thin base layer right now and this is cold, but that my movement is quickly going to generate warmth. And I would rather start uncomfortably cool in contrast to starting comfortable and then quickly be sweating. And if I'm not careful, paying attention to that level of perspiration and now getting wet in this cold environment. So again, that may seem like very basic, but I will say that you have to intentionally make that choice. And few people, if you're not conscious of, of that, because it's choosing to be uncomfortable with, which is what most people don't want to do. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, all that said, like specific pieces, um, you know, one that comes to mind and, uh, it it really like highlights kind of the problem of trying to be warm and yet not overheat is um, there's a piece from Sitka gear, which again, not sponsored, not whatever there called the ambient. And it is um, what they call like an an active insulation piece. Um, So it's meant to be somewhat of a mid layer. It's meant to provide warmth yet at the same time, not create the problems we just talked about in terms of like overheating too quickly. And so retaining warmth while at the same time, allowing some, some moisture to transfer. And it, I don't mean this about the Sitka piece specifically, but the, the fabric that they're using, and there's a couple on the market that are similar to this insulation technology that has inherent benefits. And so, um, the one that they use is called evolve and there's others out there called alpha and they're, they're really similar. Uh, people can picture like a Sherpa fleece almost it's kind of similar to that, but not, not as dense. And so it's a longer fleecier type of material that is going to retain warmth. Again, like the purpose and the way that insulation functions is insulation at its core, whether we're talking about, a jacket, like what people would call a puffy jacket, or the same way that a sleeping bag works, for example, is to create pockets of air that then can trap your body heat. So no insulation creates heat. It's not a heat source. It's just the heat that your body has. It is trapping some of that around you to create a warm environment using your own body heat um, and keep that around you. Traditional types of insulation like down feathers, for example, or even similar synthetic fibers that are loose fill, you know, they need, they need to be sandwiched in between layers. They need to layer on the inside and a layer on the outside to then hold this insulation in place or protect that insulation um, from a durability perspective. But anytime you add these layers, you're decreasing 
breathability. And so, you know, think of hiking with a puffy jacket on, right? Like it's great when you're not moving, but now because it is so warm as you build up heat and now you have these layers that prevent moisture transfer or allow a certain amount of heat to escape, you're just quickly going to overheat in them. Anyway, like Alpha and uh, Evolve, these fabrics like in the Sitka Ambient, for example, is one of many options out there. But it's it's basically like a a newer, better version of fleece in a way, in the sense that it doesn't need that extra layer, that extra membrane. It performs better than a traditional fleece, um, but it's not a loose fill insulation. And so you can decrease the layers in the garment and it's just going to allow better breathability. Um, I know like that was all very nerdy, but that's one piece in particular that again, like you have competing interests of, I want to be warm, but I need a certain amount of this warmth or moisture to escape away from me and not overheat. Um, and I'm often like in scenarios where it could be cool or cold, but I may be cycling between a high effort physical intensity and then lower effort. So that may mean I'm, Oh, I need to climb this thousand feet to get to this vantage point, but then I'm going to sit down and glass and get behind binos and look for animals for a while. And part of that is taking layers on and off. But I will say at the same time, if you can find pieces that work well across that broader spectrum of conditions and physical activity, it just helps manage like moisture and comfort throughout the, um, throughout the whole process. And so that's like one piece in particular that again, it just came out like this year, but I've used it in a handful of States on a handful of trips and a bunch of different conditions. And that's not only on hunting. Like I just went for a run yesterday morning and it was 20 degrees out and I was wearing this piece and it performed incredibly well. Um, so, and we're, we're going to see more, um, like Polar Tech and some of the bigger names in insulation. I mean, that's who's creating these fabrics. It's not that Sitka invented this technology. It's the the fabric suppliers. And so we're going to see more and more of this coming um, to the market for sure. Um, that a lot of guys will, whether you're backpacking, hunting, climbing, shooting, whatever, like these types of pieces are are going to be really, really nice improvements to some of the traditional either fleeces or lighter weight insulation puffy jackets that most people have used over the last, you know, decade. Yeah, that's cool. I remember maybe a decade or so ago seeing some like really woolly, I'll have to look this up and check it out, but it sounds like, um, yeah, I like that, you know, like old fleece and I've got so many, my house kind of looks like Goodwill and I've got like (laughs) three decades of, of stuff that's been, um, but, but, but uh, yeah, I'll check that out. I do like fewer layers that can breathe more and man. Yeah. There's nothing like sweating and getting wet, not realizing how much you've sweat. And then either your core temperature drops or the ambient temperature drops. And then you can't get that cold out without, you know, some, some other drastic, you know, things. And then, uh, man, that hits you pretty hard when, you've made the wrong choice, but you don't realize it for a couple hours. Um, yeah. and then you kind of have to go into default into other modes to try to warm yourself back up and, and that kind of catch ups. That's not fun. Um, 
that's pretty cool. So that, that's synthetic. Um, mm-hmm. and that's a mid layer, right? So you, so you got a mid layer. What are you using as your base layer? Yeah, it's, um, yeah. So I'll say off the bat, like generally for me, I feel like if I have a good base layer, a good mid layer, and then what I'll call like a static insulation, meaning like when I am sitting the glass or I'm just not very mobile, I'm not doing anything high exertion. What, you know, what most people just call puffy jacket, right? Like that next level of cold weather insulation. I'm pretty much year round, really, especially in a mountainous environment, going to always have those three pieces. And then what I would add to that would be some sort of shell or call it a rain jacket. And sometimes that's because of rain. And sometimes that's simply because of wind as well. Um, I'll often use a rain jacket as like a wind break. So really those call those four pieces, a base layer, mid layer, static insulation, and then a shell is getting me through almost everything um, from a summer backpacking trip to, you know, late fall, for example. Um, base layers themselves, I've, I've gone, I, I have used Merino wool a ton, um, again, for like the last decade. And being part of the big reason for that is for hunting. And then in particular for these extended hunts where you're now out there for days on end, Merino wool being a natural fiber, um, and having some, um, natural microbial features like to reduce bacteria, therefore reducing scent is pretty dang amazing, especially compared to the synthetics that I was used to from quite a while ago, which quickly get incredibly nasty. And, you know, scent is a concern when you're hunting big game in particular, like your backpack elk hunting. But I mean, I've used some synthetics in the past. I didn't even want to be with myself after two or three days of backpacking in them. And so I will say that I've used um, mostly merino wool uh, four base layers. And then recently I have started using more synthetics and that's for hunting, but also going back to what you said earlier, like what's some of the specific pieces, I will say that for a long time, I, to shift gears completely from cold weather and warm weather, I didn't realize how valuable a lightweight long sleeve call it sun hoodie is um, and mostly synthetic here for a few reasons but I pretty much especially again whether it's um, a hunt an early season hunt or like that death hike we did in the summer if I'm exposed in a relatively warm environment or just a lot of sun period Instead of thinking, oh man, it's hot, I need to wear a t-shirt, most often now it's like, oh man, it's hot and I'm going to have a decent level of exposure. I really need to be in a long sleeve hoodie, but make that obviously as lightweight as possible. And just re- increasing the coverage from that hood and the long sleeves and reducing that sun exposure has done like wonders in terms of temperature regulation um, and obviously just preventing things like sunburn. And I found for me in particular, synthetics work well in that environment. I have some incredibly lightweight merino base layers um, that I do like, but you know, merinos 
known to perform well when it's wet. And so you'll see people talk about, well, Marina, when it gets wet, is still going to provide warmth. And that is true. The issue becomes, and depending on the environment and the preference, and honestly, individuals' level of perspiration, like what they're prone to, Merino also isn't going to dry as fast. And so while it does retain some performance benefits when it is wet, the other side of that coin is often synthetics won't stay wet. And so even though they may not feel like they perform as well when they're wet, they're also going to dry much quicker. And so take the proverbial, um, like on our death hike, for example, I mean, there was efforts where we would literally climb 4,000 feet, get to the top and sit and take a break. And now you're at this higher elevation. It's cooler. The wind's kicking up. You're a bit more exposed. Your body's coming down off of this high exertion. You can sit there in a merino base layer and you're clearly sweaty from this effort. But I tend to get a little bit cooler then when that wind kicks up. My body starts to downregulate from the effort and I'm static. Whereas in a synthetic, I'm just going to dry much quicker. Or if I do start to get cool and put on any sort of layer over that base layer, whether that's an insulation piece or a shell, essentially the because the synthetic can dry much quicker, if I put on something that's going to then retain my body warmth, that heat is going to accelerate the, the rate at which that synthetic dries. And so it can actually dry much quicker. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm not trying to say which one is better or right or wrong. I'll just say that there's pros and cons for base layers on Merino or synthetic and that they both have their place. And I think not only do they both have their place based on the conditions, but some people are going to find themselves preferring one or the other given the properties or maybe how much perspiration they're prone to. Um, and then certain environments can make a difference. Like on my mountain goat hunt uh, this year, because it's it's a coastal mountain range. I mean, you're going literally straight from the sea at sea level to 4,000 feet and you're on the coast still, that environment is just incredibly humid. And even when it's not wet, it's wet just because it's high humidity. And so for that, for example, I prioritize synthetics because they would dry quicker in this higher humidity environment compared to merino wool, which um, may keeps them warm when they're wet, but the, there's literally just times where they're flat out not going to dry in a high humidity environment. Um, and then I'll say at the end, like given that I've, historically primarily used merino wool over the past decade and dabbled with synthetics i also have come to realize that synthetics have come a long way in terms of what i mentioned earlier about the smell scent funk factor (laughs) um and you know some of the ways that these synthetics are either treated or um kind of mixed with other natural like some of them use copper and like all the bamboo, like all these other additives essentially to that. And I don't want to go off in that or pretend I'm the expert in that, but I will say that I've been impressed that some of the synthetics don't get as smelly or nasty remotely as quick as synthetics used to based on my previous experience anyway. Yeah. But man, I'll, when you I'll summarize that by saying, <laughs> yeah, if it's, ahead. if it's prone to be, cooler and drier i still tend to prefer merino if i anticipate wetter either in 
precipitation, perspiration, or humidity, I tend to prefer synthetics and their quick drying ability. So I continue to have both, use both, and go back and forth. Yeah, well, shit, that's good. That's good to know. That's good to hear. Yeah, if you say synthetics, like to me, I I, I just cannot get over the smell that happens, and and it's, I mean, it's not only like it's really can be massively disgusting, but again, like my reference, like I, I watched the whole evolution of outdoor equipment getting synthetics and then having it modified and then treating the down and then not you know treated not yeah. and then everything you know you're right it, it, it's all kind of spiraling forward um you know have you ever had those arguments. like have you ever had those synthetic pieces that start to smell and then no matter how many times or what you use to wash them they're just always like as soon as you put it back on it stinks again yeah instantly right oh, terrible yeah they're like i don't i don't know what it is but you literally cannot remove that from it, no matter what you wash it in. Yeah. Um, and that could be, I mean, that's just distracting, but it's, uh, it's interesting. You know, I yeah. think that the, the, the weight argument was always a big one. Um, but again, that goes back and forth. So every year it tends to switch. And that's why it's fun to hear about, you know, what you've been using. Cause I don't know where the argument is right now, but, I, but, but the funny thing is, right. You want to hear people arguing that are, actually both getting out there to use it and, and, and getting after it. So, I mean, I just like hearing you just say like, you know, we climbed up 4,000 feet just to kind of take a look around. Like that's the kind of stuff I love because like, you know, you're out there, you have something that you need to do and you'll do whatever it takes to accomplish what you went there to do, which could mean going up and down 4,000 feet just to kind of get a look from another mountaintop go down go back up go look up another one and and uh that that sometimes kind of fades into background noise oh, but but that's where a lot of the valuable experience and knowledge comes from even though you know you're thinking about a sheep or you're thinking about you know getting to camp or or doing something but on the other hand like every hill you go up and down that provides an opportunity for something not to work right. And, um, and, and for all the actual knowledge to, to start a community. So, so I, I just like hearing like, all right, you know, we did this. Or you, or you guys do, I call them shakedown hikes. You call them death hikes. So it's like, all right, you know, you, you kind of slowly increase your use and then you pick the gear that you're going to go on and then you go out and, and put it through like a real test, um, you know, to make sure, that everything that you picked is the right, is the right stuff. Um, I'm going to change gears completely, but I'm just going to ask you about things that require batteries. Like what are some things that you like or depend on, uh, that, that require batteries? Yeah, it's a good question. I, in, in the, um, like everything else, technology is like, worked its way into every area of everything. Right. So, um, yeah. So for me, generally, I'm just going to try and like think off the top of my head. If I set off on a week long backpack hunt, the things that I'm going to be not only using to some extent, but relying on would be a headlamp, um, a Garmin in reach, which if people are unfamiliar, that's like a satellite communications device, meaning, I can, number one, call for emergency SOS 
if needed, if I do fall and break my femur or what have you, like I can call for air support, life flight, et cetera. Or on the flip side of that, just let my wife know I'm alive, which is how I use it primarily, thankfully. Um, so yeah, headlamp, uh, the communication device, which is a satellite uh, Garmin InReach Mini. My phone, and I use that primarily in in two ways, and there's a subtle tertiary way, but one is the obvious like photos. I don't I, I generally hope to not have cell phone service when I go out places. So that's kind of my goal is to be offline and not be on my phone. But I do love taking photos if for nothing else, my own memories. But most importantly for navigation. Um so there's you know there's a ton of mapping apps out there. One of the big players particularly in the hunting world is called is called OnX. Um so called it's called OnX Hunt. And what some people who may not be familiar with don't realize is your phone and the GPS chip inside of your phone does not need service at all to function cell service. So what a an app like Onyx does, and again, there's others, but I will basically know where I'm going. And then based on that, before I leave for that trip, I will download maps for that area. And when I say that area, you can choose basically how much level of detail you want in a map. So how close basically you're zoomed in and then what type of area you want to cover. So I know, okay, I'm going to primarily focus in this area for this hunt. And um, based on my capabilities movement, I'm primarily going to be in this range, but Maybe if it doesn't work out, I'm going to, after three days, hike back out, get to the truck, and then drive 20 miles away, and then here's my plan B for this hunt. I can have maps downloaded, preloaded for offline access for all these different areas I want to head into. And then when I'm in the field, my phone's GPS chip uh, works precisely to show me where I'm at, and then it's showing me where I'm at on the specific mapping imagery that I pre-downloaded. And that mapping imagery could be topographic, satellite, uh, a blend of both, etc. So the phone is critical for navigation. Um, so yeah, phone communication uh, being the InReach Mini, headlamp. Those are primary ones. Obviously, another... Another one that's still electronic is a rangefinder. So whether I'm rifle hunting or archery hunting, and I do both, having a rangefinder is critical there. So that's another electronic electronic device. So all those are using battery, um, and then obviously need to be managed over the course of a hunt. Um, the rangefinder is its own battery. It's not rechargeable. It generally has good battery life. What I typically will do is put in a fresh battery before my primary hunting season begins and don't really have any concerns of, of that failing or running out over the course of, you know, even multiple months. That said, I do tend to have an extra one in there because they're light. Those other devices, um, the headlamp, the Garmin InReach Mini, and my phone are all going to be rechargeable. And so to supplement that, I'm typically carrying a battery bank, a power bank, whatever you want to call it. And then obviously the cables to go along with that to connect those devices to that power source. Um, Generally don't do solar panels. They have some small packable ones. In my experience, they 
number one, tend to be pretty unreliable and efficient sources of power in and of themselves. And then number two, they're obviously very situationally or sorry, conditionally dependent on, do you have um, the exposure to even generate that power for a solar device? So carrying something like a, a battery bank, and there's clearly a ton out there these days, but is going to be really critical for me um, to keep a headlamp communication device and navigation for my phone powered up, you know, over the course of a week or 10 days or whatever that trip length is. Nice. Yeah. I haven't messed around with the solar stuff either too much. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm curious, you know, one of these days it's going to get light, it's going to get more efficient, but I feel like it just hasn't got there for me personally. Um, but it seems like, you know, eventually that's going to happen and then all of us are going to, have to start joining the ranks of, of solar powered stuff, but yeah. shit, I don't even use rechargeable stuff really just cause I, I feel like I haven't developed the trust in it. I have some, but I mm-hmm. don't usually default to that. A lot of my kind of powered stuff is like black diamond headlamps and they started having rechargeable ones a long time ago, but I've always felt like, man, I'm not taking that this time. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the like both... something that I've always do is like, well, maybe not this time. Yeah. The best of both worlds are, like black diamonds, perfect example, many of their headlamps that are rechargeable. It's nothing more than a rechargeable version of like AAA batteries. And so you can charge it if you have that power source, or you can also carry, you know, extra standard, whether it's alkaline lithium batteries and just swap out those cells if needed. And so you get the best of both worlds, which is what I generally recommend for something like a headlamp. Um, I will say based on my experience, lithium batteries do tend to be worth it. Um, they're yes, lighter, uh, and I count the weight of everything, but they just tend to have better life, uh, particularly in, in colder weather. And then I will be intentional in very cold weather. I'll often take electronics and basically keep them in my sleeping bag with me and keep them with some ambient warmth from my body heat just because cold has certainly, I mean, different, different types of batteries with different chemistry performed differently. Um, so it's not a blanket statement, but in general exposure to cold will reduce battery life. And so I will intentionally, um, just kind of keep those batteries with me often in my sleeping bag, just to keep that temperature level up. And then while I'm thinking of putting stuff in my sleeping bag, I will say a couple other things that are uh, unrelated, but made me think of it. One being any clothing that you do want to dry out, or maybe we talked earlier about like base layers and this applies to socks. I change socks at least daily, um, if not more regularly, but I'll always take like what I generally do is the socks I just wore all day. I will take off and put a fresh pair on at night Um, and then my dirty socks, which even in a cooler environment, like are going to have some moisture in them for sweat. I will keep in the foot of my sleeping bag because again, I want to keep those with some warmth to help expedite the drying of those. And by morning they're dry and you can do the same thing with base layers. If you have something that's, you know, damp, sweaty, keep it in your sleeping bag with you and all that heat generated and then held by your sleep system is going to help dry those items out. The other one in, um, this gets back to somewhat like the basics of survivability and livability. 
But if you're in this environment for however many days, as we rely heavily on um, water sources and then clearly filtering water, and there's different ways to do that. You can treat it with chemicals. You can use a pump. Um, I tend to use a hollow membrane like squeeze filter, uh, such as the Kedidin Be Free, Sawyer Squeeze, Platypus Quick Draw, et cetera. There's a bunch out there, but those those styles of filters um, they push they push water through essentially call it these straws that then catch the nasties they catch the particulates and then allow the clean water to to filter through. What can happen is because water when it freezes it expands. If you have water trapped in, call it these straws that then freezes and expands, it can crack those straws or those filtering elements therefore rendering them perhaps ineffective at actually catching what they're supposed to catch. And so it's generally recommended with those styles of filters that you don't let them freeze heavily. And so I do two things. One is um, these filters, I basically, you can shake them and that gets most of the excess water out after you use them. But the other thing is in cold environments, that's another thing I will put in my sleeping bag with me again, to keep it near body heat and to keep it from freezing. So random rabbit trail. But when I go to bed at night, I'll often have electronics, any clothing that's relatively damp, or my water filter all in my sleeping bag with me. Nice. I usually boil water and throw it in an algae and also throw it down by my feet. Yeah. If I can, just to keep my feet warm. (laughs) That's awesome. Okay. Let's see. Um, well, you mentioned, you mentioned water, water purification. I've, I've always been an algae guy, so I don't usually kind of go one way or the other. The, um, the metal ones are nice. You can boil water in them and stuff, but I'm, I'm pr- pretty much default to Nalgene's and not bladders personally. But mm-hmm. what do you, what do you carry your, your water in when you're out for the day? Um, both. I used to use bladders more. And then one thing with Nalgene's I haven't, um, I haven't loved, obviously they have a limited capacity, right? Like, I'll even use the tall, tall Nalgene, uh, what they call the silo, which is bigger than your standard 32 ounce. But even then there's times where I need to carry three or four, six liters of water at once. And clearly I'm not carrying around six Nalgene. So I used to rely on a bladder because it, it allowed you to carry more volume of water. And then also, um, as you're hiking, instead of having to retrieve a water bottle and then drink from it, which is typically more difficult to do while you're hiking. It's easier just to grab a bite valve and suck a drink of water as you're hiking. But I've, I've, to be honest with you, I've never loved bladders in the sense of getting them in and out of my pack and filling them and what have you. And then over the years, I have started using analgenes more and more partially because I solved that, that issue of water storage I mentioned in other ways. And so what I've done is going back to filtering in these squeeze style filters, um, Hydropack makes bladders essentially that are not meant to be drinking bladders, but water storage bladders. Um, they're called the Hydropack seeker. And so if I need to carry additional water, whether that's two liters or four liters, what have you, I can load the water in that and put that directly in my pack. And I'm not worried about accessibility and it's not yet my drinking source. It's essentially what, I, you know, call it dirty water It's straight from the source, straight from the Creek, what have you. And then as needed, I can connect my filter. I use the Kated and be free 
directly to that bladder, squeeze that bladder, and out comes clean water. And so I will just top off or fill my primary bottle, which is generally Nalgene as needed. And so now I can have a Nalgene as my drinking source and then still kind of solve that problem of extra capacity by carrying this extra bladder of dirty water as needed um, with me in my pack, but it doesn't need to be accessible and it's not my primary drinking source yet because it's not filtered. Um, And then like most of all this year, I did that system. So dirty bladder, a Nalgene, and then I'll often carry a smaller, lighter bottle that I kind of reserve specifically for flavored drinks, whether that's something like electrolytes um, or, you know, different powders either, that either want to use from a nutritional perspective or just honestly, over the course of eight days, you get tired of drinking straight water. So to add a little spice to my life, but um, a lot of times I'll just grab like a smart water bottle, um, which are, you know, really light and fit well in packs. And that can, you know, be its own source in particular for, call it flavored drinks or flavored water. Nice. Yeah. It's so fun to kind of hear people's strategies because I, I typically default like to different ones, but again, like you're, you're going places and doing things effectively. And that, that that's pretty cool that that works. I, I always carry Nalgene's around, but like in camp, I, I do bring like the platypus, the big, you know, they have the big aspects. I think platypus has the, probably the best system for sealing the bags. So like mm-hmm. in camp, yeah, I'll fill up the big, you know, four liter bags and just hang them and, and filter them if I can, or just keep them as dirty water, uh, and then drink out of those. But if I go anywhere, I usually don't have a soft bag. Um, just cause I'm, I, I've broken so many. It's the same thing with the sleeping pads. Like you talked about an inflatable sleeping pad, man, I, I've just I popped too many of them. And, uh, usually when it's the coldest. Yeah. <laughs> so it depends on like the temperature and the terrain, but, but, uh, those things, man, there's, they have so much promise, but, but again, like when, when I go out a lot of times it, I, I do kind of what you do, like where you know, you'll do like an onyx, you'll do a terrain study, map study. Well, I mean, I do that like obsessively. And then I kind of try to decide, okay, what's the strategy for water? Um, how am I going to be able to move? Move the lightest. The only thing you didn't mention is, is I, and I don't know if people are still using them as much, but like SteriPens, um, mm-hmm. you know, if, if I'm trying to go light and fast, um, most of the time I'm moving without water. So, so I'll, like, I'll drink and then I'll actually do a lot of the movements black between water sources. And obviously there's some risk to that, but, but there was purpose. And, and so with the, with that purpose, I feel like, you know, it was, it was never a bad idea, but I could see a scenario where if you tried to do that and there wasn't a water source, uh, you'd be in a lot of trouble. Um, I feel like in the Western States up high in the mountains, usually you can plan water sources that are clear enough because you run into trouble, right? Where the, where there's so many particulates that, that, that UV doesn't actually get everything that you want taken out of it. Um, but in the West, when you're doing that kind of stuff, oftentimes you can get pretty clear water and it could still have, um, things that need to be killed or filtered. But, um, but that seems to be a light and fast effective technique that I usually have analogy with one cape to the outside of it mm-hmm. just in case. Um, and then some spare batteries for that. But, um, that, that's pretty cool that, uh, yeah. man, I don't like flavored water stuff. I drink a lot of coffee. So I usually just bring like 
instant coffee and I have a empty Nalgene for coffee and then I got another one for water. But do you do it like drives me bananas. Do you always heat and like quote unquote make coffee or do you ever just dump it dump instant water like from the stream cool or that's been sitting yeah. and drink it as non-heated. long as it's caffeinated i don't care if it's not heated or if it's, uh, <laughs> you know <laughs> if it's caffeinated I'll, I'll drink it and um i think some of the instant coffee has problems dissolving but but really like this the starbucks vias man they dissolve in just about anything and if you shake it up yeah it works pretty good um yeah if i carry it kind of depends because if it's cold out i'll also probably carry something to well, it depends if I can make a fire, you know, just, just I, cause I, I just, I don't know, even though it's kind of silly, like a lot of times I just like making fires, um, mm-hmm. you know, if it's safe to do so, or you're allowed to or whatever, I guess I should put that out there. A lot of times parts of the world that I'm in, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, there's no regulations on that. I like digging like a little fire pit, uh, Dakota and lighting a fire just, just to see that I can, but, but I'll carry, you know, something and I, and I like to drink some kind of hot liquid, um, so uh, maybe we should jump over to food and and um, stove. I, I got to be totally honest that um, I don't have huge experience with stoves. I used a whisper light for almost 30 years. And in the lower 48, I'll use, um, I don't always... Uh, use that, but you can't really travel around the world with, um, with other, other systems because of the availability of fuel. And maybe that's changing. Yeah, no, um, it's, yeah, it's legit. Not only, um, yeah. So call it like a canister stove, like a jet boil. Um, that's not a multi-fuel stove like the whisper light is, but like a jet boil or an MSR wind burner that uses those little, um, cylinders, you can't fly with those period. And so when you start looking at going to Alaska or really any location in particular that you're doing air travel for, you just can't fly with those. You can't check them, carry on nothing. And so that is a, I don't want to say a concern, but it's something you have to think ahead of. Um, and at least make sure that when you arrive at your destination, that you have a reliable source of fuel. If you choose to go with that canister route versus um, the multi-fuel stove that you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, Jeboils are awesome, and I have them here, and it's super convenient because if I want coffee, you know, you you basically have coffee in like two minutes or less. But but yeah, I mean, I think you know, just going somewhere with a whisper light and you got your em- empty cans, and wherever you get to, you can basically just anything that's combustible, you're good to go. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, obviously, it doesn't all burn the same it doesn't all burn clean but but you can get it functioning so i don't have a lot of experience beyond that because in the lower 48 out of the convenience i'll grab a jet boil but otherwise it i would only take a whisper light because i'm just not completely familiar with other options yeah um and and uh it wasn't something that i was really curious about exploring but do, do you have um are there other are there other options that are starting to be good and reliable? No, I mean, honestly, the, the jet boil or other canister style stoves are continue to be some of the best options out there. Um, but really the only, the only issue would be fuel availability. Um, and then you're moving to the multi-fuel stove. Um, I'll caveat that by saying 
fuel availability or extreme cold conditions. Those canister stoves, um, some of them can have trouble um, operating in extreme cold, typically also at extremely high elevations. But for for most of what I've done, I have relied uh, pretty much exclusively on a jet boil or, again, something similar like the MSR uh, wind burner or reactor. So, yeah, I, I use those pretty much exclusively primarily because what you said, the speed, um, they just boil incredibly fast. And then at the same time, they're incredibly efficient. And so, again, when I'm going out for you know a longer trip, fully self-supported, space and weight of pretty much everything matters. Um, and I can get away with one of the small fuel canisters in my jet boil stove and pretty much know that that's going to last me about a week. Um, and when you look at the efficiency and weight of that, it, it's tough to beat that with any other system. So I'm actually, I've been using the same, the same jet boil for, probably 10 years now and it's a model they no longer make. Um, it's a titanium one that I wish they still made, but, um, it's getting somewhat on its last legs. The, the fins on it are starting to like come off the pot and it's kind of throwing some flames out the side at times. (laughs) So it's going to have to be replaced at one point, but going back to what we were saying earlier, like when you find something that flat out works and sticks and you stick with it, um, that's what I've done with this jet boil and, I've certainly looked at other options and owned some other options, but it's it's definitely been the mainstay for me for a heck of a long time now. Nice, nice. How about food? That's something I'm always curious about because I'm, I'm probably like the worst cook on earth. And everybody that knows me that's gone into the field with me like refuses to allow me to talk about or make any decisions that relate to food for, for the, <laughs> for the group or the team that's going out because my food choices people hate. What are, what are some good, like what are some good food, food options, whether it's dehydrated or not? Dehydrated? I don't, I don't even know because, because to, to, I'm, I'm like literally famous in some circles for being the person <laughs> that you, whatever I say, you're going to do the opposite of yeah. when it comes to food. Um, so I'm curious about, um, I'm curious about the food side of this. Yeah. Now that I think about it, um, this is one of the areas that has changed or grown a lot in the last decade in particular, even in the last five years. Um, you know, a lot of folks are probably familiar with, one of two things are both, and that's MREs or mountain house meals, um, which are freeze dried meals. And there has been, man, just countless, like I could rip off a bunch of names of other brands and companies who've kind of entered that space into backpacking food and not only have introduced new options, but as more and more people choose to follow certain types of um, diets or food options. Like there's, there's paleo backpacking meals and now, and there's keto backpacking meals and vegetarian backpacking meals, et cetera. But, um, yeah, there's a, a lot more options than there used to be, um, just a handful of years ago. So, and a lot of those are are from really cool, smaller cottage companies. And then I'll also say it's very accessible to make your own backpacking meals, which is something that I do. I have a dehydrator, and I make my own meals. Um, and then 
you know, the flip side to this discussion is, as I'm saying meals and talking about mountain house or dehydrated meals or freeze dried meals, those are important, but I also, that's a quarter or a third of the total calories that I eat. And I'm not going into every day with three freeze dried or three dehydrated meals per day. I'm trying to mix that up. And I generally will only have a freeze dried or dehydrated meal generally at night. Um, again, conserving fuel and, and getting variety in food, but all that to say, there's a ton of options, um, much better options than there used to be. I mean, mountain house, even though they're, they're freeze dried and that's somewhat preserving that food. They're also jam packed with a ton of actual preservatives and chemicals. Um, and some of them are flat out delicious, but then you eat too much of them and, you know, it can wreak havoc on your gut. And like anything else, this is an area where I will say, test it, test it before you go out on the big adventure, um, figure out what you like from an appetite perspective and what agrees with you. And one of the biggest dangers I see and problems that I see isn't that people don't have enough food necessarily. Some people, most people tend to actually overpack how much food they need, but then under eat that food, meaning they've packed plenty, but they don't have the appetite or what they packed doesn't sound good on day three or day five or day seven of a trip. And then now you get behind in calories and now your physical capabilities suffer. Um, as you often get behind on calories, you often get behind on dehydration. Now you're dealing with, or sorry, behind on hydration. Now you're battling dehydration, headaches, et cetera. So there's a lot of personal preference involved in food. Um, and just making sure that I am packing something that agrees with my system that isn't going to make me sick, especially consuming several days of it in a row. And that is going to continue to sound good. And I, it's funny if I pack for a trip, part of it is these like nice homemade dehydrated meals that I'll often whip up myself and a good portion of my food for a trip also looks like I'm shopping for a teenage girl's slumber party. Um, meaning like I'm packing in, you know, like candy and, and pop tarts and stuff like that, which is usually the only time I eat that junk. But, um, again, going back to calories that are quickly digestible, usable from a performance perspective, and that are just going to consistently sound good, even when I don't necessarily feel great is a big piece of the puzzle. Um, and what I recommend is, two things. One is figure out how many, about how many calories you should have. Like, I'm not saying you need to count every single calorie, but you do need to, especially on a multi day extended trip, kind of figure out. And some of this, some of this is math. Some of this is going to be experience, but how much food should I be bringing per day is the first thing. And then the second thing is get, get that dialed in to the extent of rationing that out. Meaning, Take a gallon Ziploc bag for each day of your trip. And now you know, here is day one. And the, the calories for day one is in this Ziploc bag. I should eat most or all of that. And then separately, here is day two. Because you just don't want to go into a trip, like say a five-day trip with just this massive pile of food. And then not not tracking that in a way that is not organized. And then now you're under eating or overeating and, and find yourself behind the curve or 
find that you've burned through way too much food and I don't have enough. So just that organization of here's approximately, I need call it 3000 calories or 3,500 calories a day. And this is a five day trip. And now I have five individual food bags, one for each day um, is really, really important to be honest with you. Yeah, that's a good idea. That's awesome. Yeah. I think, um, you mentioned the, the, the candy and the calories, the carbohydrates warm. It also increases your body temperature too. So when you're cold and wet, you jump inside your sleeping bag and you're trying to evaporate all that moisture that, you know, you got to have a lot of food in your body to generate that core temperature. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of upside to being able to generate heat fast. And if you can't, you know, if you're not doing something active, a quick way to raise your core temperature is to have food. Um, and, uh, a lot of that's going to start off with, with carbohydrates. But I, I almost eat, I don't want to say exclusively, but my, even my day to day diet is almost, is mostly carbohydrates. At first. I just like bread, so um, yeah. bread and coffee. Uh, I was like on a trip, I'll be like, all right. So, you know, <laughs> I love the idea of like going and like seeing what kind of small animals that we can eat when, when, when we go somewhere. So like, I'm always trying to think of like, okay, are there fish? Are there like mice or rodents or um, rabbits or, you know, you name it. Like if, if Grouse, we're man. Kind of like picking them off while we're moving, like I try to budget that into like the calorie plan, but it's distracting. A lot of people don't really like to eat some of the things that I'm like, oh man, this would be really awesome. Like, you know, trying to figure out like if we can eat grubs or, or like field mice or, you know, can we, can we attract things that come to, to our camp at night, you know, and then try to eat those yeah. things. And it's like, man, let's just cook and not worry about trying to catch shit. But, um, <laughs> to me, I, I really like that, you know, or, or I used to do this regular trip to the wind river range for, you know, 10 days or so. And I would just take dehydrated soup and I would add extra salt to it would, and then a couple sticks of butter. And then, um, I would just plan on catching fish, you know, as the rest of the calories but yeah. you end up spending a lot of time fishing because you realize that you're not getting that many calories uh, compared to the other things. And people got sick and tired of that. So, um, yeah, but, but those are things that I like to try to plan on in advance. And, and then my obsession with carbohydrates, uh, it leads, you know, other people to try to make other plans. But I, I like the idea of talking about food and how people are going to plan their calories. And, um, you mentioned that food doesn't taste good. I'm always surprised um, that people don't test some of that stuff before they go out. Like I'm not necessarily saying like that there's like the best test, but I think one really good test for any outing, even if, even if you plan on camping um, is, you know, on like not the world's greatest night, you just load up a pack with stuff in it and walk all night. <laughs> like, yeah. I think that's probably one of the best tests for a lot of things that is very easy for most people to do. Um, and they discover a ton about their shoes, their socks, their layers, their mindset, their what food sounds good when they're tired versus um, not tired or when, and, and what drinks sound good and so on and so forth. And it's not the world's most fun thing to just load up your pack with a bunch of stuff and walk all night. I think 
that that can do what many, many other things can't do. And that's one of the first things that I tell people that when they're selecting stuff to do and they're going on an important trip, I say, Hey, look, you know, this is what I would do. And, um, they think I'm crazy and, and, and a lot of people don't do it, but I, I do think that there's something to be said for what food sounds good to you at four in the morning. And you've been walking since, you know, 7 PM, um, is not going to be the same as when you left at seven. And it's probably going to be more like what you're going to feel like on day four or day seven or day 15 or day 30 or whatever on this trip, than what sounds good to you right now. Um, and, and yet, you know, so many people just don't want to, don't want to do that. So, so lastly, all of this equipment, you're carrying it. I, you know, I, I gotta say like, and this isn't like a shit, I don't have to say anything if I don't want to, but, um, the exopack that I have from you guys crushes, I have quite a, I mean, I have so many bags that I could probably open up like an REI just of my gear. I love it. And, and so I think it's very well designed, the material, the adjustments, and there are some other packs that are, they look pretty similar, but when you load them up with stuff and you put the things where they need to go and you go out on like this overnight walk just to make sure everything fits right and works right. And you can access it when you need it. Doesn't quite shake out when, when you're doing your kind of train ups for some of these outings, the balance of what, what is the balance of let's say marksmanship and fitness and other skills how do, how do you balance out um, making sure that everything is at the standard that you need it at because you know like a like a lot of groups of people you know you're not you have a, you have fitness standards that are higher than the average person but there's a purpose for it right and mm-hmm. so that that that's an interesting paradigm because you know some people go to i don't, I don't I don't do CrossFit and I don't have anything against CrossFit, but I think that a lot of people, um, misunderstand, you know, being fit and able to exercise every day versus being able to perform a job day in and day out at a high standard. And that, that there's a difference between the two. Um, and so how do you know you're ready and, how close to the actual or how far past the actual expected exertion levels are are you training? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. Like the, for me, I think about that. I mean, and you said it in there, capped it well, there's, there's general fitness and then call it, there's specified demands for a given endeavor. And so as I get closer to whether it's like one of our organized hikes or to hunting season in general, my training gets more specific for the demands of that specific pursuit. And then the rest of the year, I try to keep a general level of fitness that's fairly well-rounded. And then year to year, have the freedom to go, hey, this is kind of what I want to do this year. Like Part of the problem, I think, with people living a lifestyle where they stay in shape is that they, they, they put too narrow of a definition on what that means. And then they think 
for me to stay in shape means I have to do this. I have to go to the gym this many times or run this many miles or whatever they think that means. And for me, I've always taken the approach of like staying in shape can look like a lot of different things. Like some years I'll come out of hunting season and I've hiked so much. I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to hike for the next two months. Like I want to, maybe I want to lift weights or maybe I want to see what I can get my power clean up to. And I've never been like a super power lifter guy. So for me, that's pretty, a pretty weak number. Um, and then other years it's like, no, I just kind of have this itch to keep doing miles and run. And so I will say that throughout the year, I try and stay active and stay in shape and keep a general level of fitness and both like strength and endurance. But I let that, I let my interest or desire be what it is and don't conform myself to it has to look this way. And then yes, is I know, okay, we're flying into the Frank church in April and we're going to hike so many miles and snow snowshoe so many miles once I have a specific event and can kind of like define some demands or parameters of what I think that looks like, now I'm going to do some very specific training to like lead up to that, both from a physical capabilities perspective, as well as like a call it like a prehab, like how do I take care of myself leading up to this event where I'm not only preparing for it, but I'm taking care of my body in such a way that I'm actually going to go into it, not only trained, but not overtrained or not injured or anything like that. And so for me, it's just kind of a cyclical thing of what do I want to do to stay in shape? And then what events or trips or adventures do I have on the calendar that have a specific demand? And then how do I kind of prepare for those um, specifically? And if, if you do it that way, I've, I don't know. I haven't always been, um, I haven't always been an athlete necessarily I haven't even always been in shape but for the last 15 years and in particular as I've done more and more outdoor adventures I guess it's been much easier for me to want to stay in shape partially because I love getting out and doing these types of things so much and it does require a level of fitness but partially because I've let myself over those years not get so stuck on fitness must look like this and have that level of, of variability. So I don't know if that answers yeah. the question. Well, I think it does. I think it, I think it's nice to hear that, that you don't get stuck in a track. I think that's good for everybody to hear because a lot of us, including myself, kind of, you end up kind of stuck in a track a little bit and realize that, man, you know, there's so many, so many fun things come from off Shit. I wouldn't even be shooting if it wasn't because on the off season from other interests, you know, I was trying to fill it with, you know, semi related, but not quite the same activities, you know? So like, all right, cool. Let's do the sniper adventure challenge because yeah. it's, it's similar enough, but, but not where at least I'm staying active and at least I'm staying capable and I can land up and run around and, and, and do my thing. Um, and then that opened up all these new doors yeah, that's one thing. And that's one thing I love about the these like hunts and these trips is they're they're multidiscipline, right? Like there's a fitness aspect to it. There's a backpacking, hiking, survival aspect to it. There's a shooting aspect to it. 
And like for people listening, maybe they'd never get into backcountry or mountain hunting or backpack hunting. That's totally fine. But I would say take whatever your thing is. If your thing is like a PRS match or whatever, what have you, like find something where you can take those same skills in that same pursuit, but then apply it in some sort of like overlap to some other sort of like adventure or pursuit where you're using your experience and maybe some of the strength and knowledge and skills you've felt, but at the same time, you're now pushing outside of what has been your like traditional boundaries and forcing yourself to, and also encounter new things while at the same time having the opportunity to tie that into your previous, like that's such a perfect marriage of, I have some experience and comfort and knowledge and skills here, but I can also now extend that and like find this new boundary in this new place where I'm also learning something else. And then now it all melds together. And I don't know, for me, I just, I love that about these types of trips. Cause it ends up being for me like this year round thing. Like I could be trail running, but it's going to affect my mountain hunting and I could be shooting, but it's going to affect this trip I have coming up and I could be backpacking, but maybe it's a shakedown to test out some gear or what have you. And, um, it's all cohesive. And at the same time, there's a lot of like difference and a variability that keeps things interesting. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. I mean that, man, everybody's interesting that I know personally, that's how they kind of discover new things is that kind of slow overlap of strengths into the unknown and people that kind of stay in their lane and don't branch out of that. Like I lose touch with because it's just not interesting to me. Like, <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Like to grow as a person it, and it's fun to leverage your strengths into areas of weakness or, or not even weakness, just, just areas that you've never really explored into and, Seems like getting out into the wilderness is a good way to good way to do that. All right, so before before I go start my kid roundup, I'm gonna ask one more thing. When you're out there, like here, it's it's impossible nowadays to be bored, right? Because all you gotta do is open your phone or computer or something or call somebody, do whatever. Boredom is real <laughs> when you're when you're out, especially let's say a storm comes in and you're stuck in your tent, like, do you have any tricks or things that you like to do to pass the time to stay mentally sharp or stay engaged? Um, when you're not able to do the stuff that you feel like you should be doing when you're out there because of weather or for one reason or another. Yeah. Yeah. For me, that starts with like, who are you with? If anyone, so if you're solo, it does get very, very tough. And then if you're with people, you'll find out quickly how much you enjoy those people. <laughs> um, but yeah, like that, I mean, there's been that first trip Alaska I talked about where we kind of got flown in and dropped off for a week. Plus we had a massive storm roll through with, I, if I said a wind number, I'd be making it up because we didn't have a wind meter, but incredibly difficult winds um, so much so that we couldn't be out on them. And we were in a tent for, 34 hours, I think straight other than literally just relieving yourself. And so that trip in particular happened to be a group hunt. There's a handful of us. So we actually had a blast, but, um, if it's, you know, you and a buddy or you're solo, um, things that help at least for me that I do 
is I'll have books downloaded again on my phone. I just use the Kindle app, not like its own Kindle device, but Kindle app. And so I can read to pass the time. Um, I know plenty of guys who hate reading, but maybe try it. Other guys I know download movies and, you know, we'll have headphones and watch a movie. I personally don't do that much. Um, game, like, again, I'm not into games, but I know guys who have games on their phones, what have you. But I will say part of what I purposely try to do is actually embrace that boredom and let myself be bored and let my mind wander and I think we miss out a lot on day-to-day life because we are so stimulated and entertained and there is no down moment and there's no quiet. And so I think for the vast majority of us, it's really healthy to actually be forced into that and try not to escape that. Um, And I don't want to get like crazy philosophical here, but part of the value that I get out of these extended trips is knowing that those types of moments and experiences are going to come. And some of the best like mm, clarity and decision-making and thoughts about my life have come in particular because I've been so disconnected and bored and I've allowed myself to like, instead of seeking something outside to entertain me or stimulate me or cure my boredom, I've just allowed myself to go inside and kind of do some thinking and soul searching and, and life planning type stuff. So party would say, yes, like address the boredom if you need to read, play a game, do whatever. But then part of me is just going to say, no, just embrace it. And it's going to feel uncomfortable and really crappy because it's just not the way we live life anymore. But that's actually what we need is just actually step into that boredom um, for a while and get comfortable. That's its own you know, it's like easy to say, Oh, get comfortable being, un- being uncomfortable. And a lot of times we're thinking because of something like very physical, like a hard hike or uncomfortable, like cold conditions or what have you. But I would say for many of us listening and, and for myself, some of my experiences, most of the discomfort has actually come from just facing that like quiet, non-stimulated being with yourself type thing, but it's good for us. Heck yeah, man. I couldn't agree more. I think that's uh man. That's like a whole new podcast in itself. Like talking about those kinds of moments and lessons that we've learned when you're kind of forced there just to be with yourself. Um, but I do have to cut us off here and we're just going to have to extend it. We're going to, um, we're going to have to do this again because I still have gear questions. Um, but this has been fun. So, so I, so I appreciate you coming on and, and, uh, chatting and I'm just going to have to have to have you back, like maybe in a couple of weeks and we can like have part two. Um, because I think there's so much to be shared from personal experiences kind of out on trips, like things that you discovered about yourself and, and, um, that, that this could kind of take another extension and keep going and be a fun, a fun talk. And I think it, it's a good kind of, um, not a request, but like, a. uh, and I think all, all people kind of need to go out on some of these types of trips or have experiences that really are completely different from their day to day life. Um, 
And, and some of these hunting trips could be the real ticket, especially for my listeners. Some of them, I mean, imagine a lot of them probably don't hunt at all, but to take the time to explore that or for hunters to take other, other hunters or to take a bigger, longer trip or, um, you know, to kind of push into those territories of this, that, that are a little bit scary, I guess, for personal mm-hmm. growth. And, uh, man, it's fun. It's fun just to chat with, with guys that are out there in the world kind of doing their thing. And, and I appreciate you coming on because, because your thing is different than mine and my thing's different than yours, but, but yet like there's some overlaps and it's fun to just touch base every once in a while and see, you know, who, where, what, and how things are going and uh, what things are coming up and then maybe check back in after your um, April trip and uh, see, see what kind of gear you're, you're taking out and then your after action on some of that gear. Yeah. It'd be great, man. Yeah. If I could, I, we hit on, I mean, we hit on a lot today, but we talked about gear in particular a little bit. We talked about training a little bit and we talked about nutrition a little bit. And those three things are people, it seems like are always seeking more information on. And, um, I just want to point people to resources and this isn't meant to be a sales pitch, but if you go to the Exo mountain gear website, you can skip over all of our gear or buying anything. And I would just say, if you go in our main menu under resources, there's a free gear list and a free gear list template. There's a free training plan for endeavors like mountain hunting. And then there's also a free nutrition plan for doing what we talked about, like figuring out how many calories you need if you're doing a multi-day trip, whether that's backpacking or hunting or whatever. And so legit, those are all free resources that if people were like, Oh man, I wish they would have talked more about nutrition or how many calories does Mark take or what does he specifically do to train or whatever. I would just point people to those. Cause there's a bunch more like legit free, pretty solid information there. Awesome. I'll put that in the show notes too. And I, maybe I'll uh, plug that. I'll, I'll take a look and, and see how I can plug it. Um, and mention that cause, cause that is a good point. I think um, some of that stuff I always just shy away from cause People, you know, as soon as I start talking about fitness or, or training for a goal or being athletic or something like that, first of all, I, I haven't been athletic for a couple of years. <laughs> but second of all, like a lot of times the things that I say, people get turned off right away because all of a sudden it sounds like a lot of work. Um, <laughs> so, um, but, but I'll, but I'll, I'll do that and then and send them to you. And then maybe if people have questions, we can, we can answer their questions next time. It'd be cool yeah. to have like a big round table where, you know, people covered different areas and then. Uh, we did kind of a, I've never done a live kind of thing, but it would be kind of cool to add some Q and A's and stuff. I get about 15,000 listeners. Um, so I don't, I don't know, you know, the, I feel like competitive shooting world is about a thousand people. And so like where the 15,000 people are and what they do is hard to put my finger down on. And I hear from some and I hear from others. Um, there's no real consistent user group that I've identified. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, the majority are here in the United States then I would say like a quarter of them are in Europe and then the other quarter or maybe, maybe a little bit less than that or like Australia, New Zealand. And then there's random scattered people around, but, but, um, you know, I, I still haven't been able to define the user group and it's much, much larger than any of the individual niches that I participate in. So it's kind of fun to see that expanding, but it would be fun to answer some of their questions and, and figure out how to, 
kind of tailor some of the content towards them. I just haven't figured out how to do that yet. But uh, yeah, the, hopefully we could figure that out. Yeah, the question stuff, man, is is great because it, like you said, it's your. I don't want to say taking guesses. You're being forced to make some assumptions on what you think the audience wants to hear. And then as you said, like you also have no idea what other people want to hear, maybe what their experience is. And so getting that feedback is always super valuable, whether you do that live or like something we do with our show is we have, um, we just tell people to email us, which is easy, but then there's that speak pipe app. And so they can just like hit a link, use their phone or whatever, hit record and then leave like an audio question um, and it's just kind of a fun interactive way. Cause then you can include their, their voice, their audio question in your, you know, your podcast. I'm like, Hey, here's this question from Luke. Right. And then play that and then address it, which is you kind of get that That's live Q and a feel without having to be live. If that makes sense. That's badass. I'm going to try that. Yeah. It's called speak pipe. Uh, we started using it like last Boulder, spring. So everybody speaks pipe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, all right. I got to go. So, I, so I'm not late uh, grabbing my first kiddo and then yeah, you bet, man. That, but, but let's follow up and I will put links and notes and I'll try to get this up and hopefully we can make this more, a more regular kind of thing. Cause it's fun to hear. And I love talking to guys that do hunts like you because it's totally not the thing that I do. And it's really cool to hear guys doing adventure things that I like, can relate to some of it and then not relate to other parts of it. Just to ask questions like what? Yeah. Like, 100%. Uh, I don't know, man. I, I, I could probably ask, you know, 10,000 questions. I've, you know, I've been there and harvested animals, but not from the perspective of somebody like you. And I'm, I'm fascinated by that. And I know, I know quite a few people who that's, you know, that's their primary thing. So it'd be fun to get some of you guys on and just talk about some of those details that really bridge that gap. Because for me, you know, it seems like another world sometimes and it's just fun to chat with people. And I like the fact that we're all a little bit different, but yeah, yeah you know, like if we had to, you know, if I was going to put together a team for an expedition, um, you know, you would be one of the guys I thought of because, you can set a goal and get after it physically and mentally. And, and, you know, all, all those things kind of come together to say, all right, you know, we need all these skill sets, but some of that common overlap is the ability to, you know, put your mind and body in the right place to accomplish mm-hmm. a task. And sometimes we forget that, you know, being people that like, like to talk about equipment or like to talk about guns or go to a flat shooting range or a shooting competition. But then it's like, that's not the real world, right? The real world happens off of those settings. And, um, those are the conversations that I think are really, really interesting. But yeah. anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm still rambling and my kiddo's not going to be happy when I'm late. So <laughs> I'm going to cut us off for real for the, for the fifth time. Um, but, uh, thank you. And I will talk to you soon. All right. Sounds good, Chris. See you. Bye.